And ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No. Because I'm going to get him. Episode of the Hagman and Hagman Report. We're coming to you live from our radio and television studios located here in northwest Pennsylvania where it's blustery cold, as is the nation. Folks, we broadcast live every weeknight, Monday through Friday, 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on the Global Star Radio Network. Spent last night with uh, Dave Hodges, uh, the first hour on the Common Sense Show. Had a good time there. We're bright, or we, we, we're bright, yeah. We simulcast on, uh, on BTR. Uh, we broadcast, of course, on the Global Star Radio Network, as I mentioned. BTR as well. And you can watch us live and by archive on YouTube as well. Links to each audio and video broadcasting venue can be found at our home base, Hagman and Hagman.com. Of course, we have another website, HagmanReport.com, there for the news information analysis. We're, we're making some changes. By the way, good news. We're going to be up, uh, running video this week. Uh, there's some changing, uh, while we had the downtime because we, we had one of our hard drives, uh, uh, fried, basically. I mean, it's fried. Uh, we're going to be back up, uh, in full force in, uh, uh, the Wednesday. I, I said today, uh, we had actually, we transferred, a, well, I, we, I'm not, uh, Eric's not pregnant, uh, Eric trans, transferred a terabyte of information just today, or a terabyte of, of, uh, video stuff. I don't know exactly know what it was, but it was big. Um, so there it is, you know. So we're going to be coming back uh, a lot, a lot stronger as well, a lot more fortified, I should say. Uh, we've got a special program for you lined up uh, in hours two and three. You're not going to believe this. No, I'm, I'm sure, man, maybe you will. Abraham Bolden. He, he, if you've never heard that name before, I'm sure many haven't. He. Uh, who is the first African American Secret Service agent serving the presidential protection detail for JFK? So yeah, it makes him a little, little on the older side. But he's articulate. He is right on the money, and he is a just a marvelous guy. He wrote a book, a tremendous book, actually. Um, I've read the Echo from Dealey Plaza. I would, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating read. It really is. It gets into, uh, no, he was not, he was not there. This is not going to be a JFK assassination show, so to speak. This is going to be about his experiences as a Secret Service agent, but also he was sent to prison. <laughs> can you believe that? He was sent to, well, of course you can. He's got an interesting story to tell. And my question is, we look at the past. Are, are the plans for the future perhaps interwoven in past events? I suspect they are. 
you look at the assassination of Kennedy, and how many times have you as listeners or viewers and thought, gee, I wonder, could that happen to Trump, perhaps, or, you know, what what's the deal? And we've, we've seen a lot of things happen with Secret Service agents, even even under Obama, but, but all of that said, Abraham Bolden has got a tremendous story to tell. He's going to get into the Chicago plot, information that, that is rarely talked about in, in relation to the JFK assassination. And the reason this is relevant to what's going on today, we have to be thinking in three dimensions. While Mr. Bolden will bring inspiration in, or information and inspiration, he'll also bring a piece of the past with him. He is a piece of the past, actually, an important piece of the past. But that said, use it as a tool to assess what's taking place today. You know, yesterday, how many people know this? The FBI quietly, oh, ever so quietly, released nearly 300 pages of records from its investigation of Hillary Clinton's private email server on Sunday. Now, the Daily Caller, Chuck Ross, reported on this. It's a fifth release of Clinton investigation records from the FBI. The documents deal with the handling of computer hardware. Now, this is computer hardware that was collected from the lawyers for the investigation and also contained emails from FBI officials discussing the classification of Clinton's emails. This is extremely important news. Now, we know that the FBI previously released notes from interviews it conducted during its investigation of Clinton's handling of classified information. Comey declined charges, if you remember from that July press conference. The emails included in the documents that were released yesterday are from the months prior to the formal opening of the Clinton email probe that was on July 10th of 2015. It's interesting. Well, the it, it's interesting because the exchanges, the email exchanges show disagreements between the FBI and the Department of State over whether some of Clinton's personal emails should be classified. Think about that for a second. Really. Before going further, portion of tonight's broadcast brought to you by Elite Island Resorts. Boy, are they having a special. You look outside, is it cold? Of course it's cold. Do you want to get away? Leave the cold weather behind and relax in the Caribbean? Of course you do. I do. Pick me. Well, later you're going to hear about uh, a tremendous offer from pineapplebeachclub.com. That's pineapplebeachclub.com. An amazing offer. An amazing offer. Pineapplebeachclub.com. But that said, as we look at what's going on with the uh, with the Clinton emails, you know, it's it's amazing to see so many people saying, "Oh, there's no there there, there's no story there, there's no there's no scandal there, there's nothing there." 
Well, in one April email, this according to Chuck Ross, Daily Caller, dated April 27, 2015, an FBI official wrote to another or to other officials that they were about to get drug into an issue on classification of Clinton's emails. Now, the, the release of the records, the names were redacted here. But the official said that the State Department was, quote, forum shopping. In other words, seeking a favorable opinion on the classification issue by asking different officials to rate emails as unclassified. You've heard of doctor shopping, right? Well, no, this is forum shopping. This is, uh, you know, hey, can you, uh, take a look at this? And yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's not, it's not worthy of classification, right? And other email traffic <clears throat> provides additional light on a controversy surrounding the State Department. The, uh, Undersecretary for Management, Patrick Kennedy, and a request he made back in 2015 that the FBI reduces classification of a Clinton email related to the September 11, 2012 attacks in Benghazi. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Didn't, weren't these, weren't, wait a second. There weren't supposed to be any email. I thought, Bill, didn't you think Hillary turned over all of her emails? That's what I thought. I believed her. She said it. I believed it. And, and, you know, Jimmy Fallon and, and, uh, all of the late night comedians, and certainly every woman from the View, feels. Uh, I mean, obviously, she. It's you know, it's a witch hunt for crying out loud. Well, I think we found the witch. The uh, investigation notes released by the FBI in October showed that an FBI official said during an interview as part of the email probe that Kennedy, Patrick Kennedy, now asked him and others at the FBI to relax the classifications on some emails. In other words, eh, take a look. Come on, guys. It's just us. Now, the the new FBI release, and, and this is quite interesting. It contains a May 21st, 2015 email. So then we're going back two years almost. In which Michael Steinbach, the FBI's assistant director of the counterterrorism division, outlined a, a specific conversation he had with Patrick Kennedy uh, just about classification. They knew they were in trouble. Steinbach said that the FBI had determined that one of the Clinton emails should be classified using B1 and B7 redactions, which they're used to protect information in the interest of national defense and to prevent the disclosure of a confidential source. B1, B parentheses 1, that's used to protect information in the interest of national defense. And then B parentheses 7, that's used to prevent the disclosure of a confidential source. Alright. Kennedy what Kennedy did was he asked the Steinbach, the FBI contact, to classify the email only, but using only the B1 category, the uh, na- national defense. An email sent two days before that from a separate FBI officials, uh, official, 
provided additional insight. You, you see that official whose name is redacted wrote that the Clinton email was redacted and classified on the rationale that it contained information that would interfere with foreign relations. Sure, certainly sounds like yoga emails to me, right? Recipes. Nothing to see here, folks. Move right along. Ay, 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 ay. Can you believe this? With the email, well, I mean, this goes on and on. So the FBI, and I find this specifically interesting because remember the server situation. Remember Brian Pagliano. Pagliano was granted immunity. The FBI release also includes an email from the attorney of Brian Pagliano, the Hillary Clinton State Department aide, who's he's the guy that set up and managed the secret email server. Um, in that particular email, Mark McDougal, Pagliano's lawyer, informed the FBI that Pagliano would decline the Bureau's request for an investigation. <laughs> <laughs> okay, just imagine you or me. <laughs> no, it's all right, guys. You get a couple of feds knocking on your door. We're here to investigate. Uh, no, I'm sorry. I decline that. No, it's all right. I decline. Uh, I, I don't want to be investigated. So, well, I will respectfully decline the Bureau's request for an investigation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you get dragged through the screen door. Okay, it, it, again, you know, the, the Golden Gob Awards or Globe Awards or Goober Awards, whatever they are, last night. All the tears flying. Oh. Really, you know, over the departure of of the Obamas from the White House, oh my God, they're leaving us. And, and of course, that same sentiment with uh, Hillary deserved to be president. She deserved it. They just, what did they do? What did the American people do? <laughs> you see these emails. The, the ones that don't exist. The ones that don't exist. That were fully turned over. Yeah, they were about Benghazi. And, and you can read, you can go to the Daily Caller. It's, it's relatively interesting. Uh, and it's, it's, it's gaining traction. Because really, if there was ever a time and ever a person that needs to be, uh, that really needs, that, that, that needs to be investigated, of course, is Hillary Clinton. And, and how do you folks feel about, you know, a presidential pardon? I, I, I don't think, I don't know this with any degree of precision. I don't have an inside source telling me this, but I don't believe that, uh, I could be wrong, but I don't believe that, that Obama is going to pardon Clinton on his way out the door. And I think that the, the, this has to do with the strategy. I, I think Trump has been silent on this, and I think that's got a lot to do with the strategy, his strategy, 
knowing that that a pardon could be forthcoming and then if it was would hillary clinton accept it i'm, I'm here's what my senses tell me she would doggone right accept it in a heartbeat the optics be damned she'd accept it but you know when you look at the timing of this release and this is something that the media look you've got control over this the media has control over the release of this during a football game it was the Giants right and and of course during the, the the Golden Globes, releasing this on the Sunday night, it is partisan politics. It's immature. It's unprofessional. It confirms, at least in my view, that the FBI is indeed political. Is indeed a an element, an operation of the government, as opposed to an independent investigative force at the highest levels. I'm not talking about the agents. That, that are, you know, working hard and putting, uh, doing their, their job. But, and again, this hidden email release, it's big news or should be big news. The FBI documents a Hillary server and the servers she communicated with. We're, we're indeed vulnerable, likely hacked by foreign governments, and it's, she's to blame. And she lied about all of this during the campaign. So we need to take a look at this. Um, Really carefully, we we need to look at the entirety of the uh, Clintonian crime family. So here's what we need to do: we need any time that there's okay, there's a let's say there's a big sporting event on television or a big uh, awards show. We what we need to do is we need to go immediately to our computers and watch the release of information. Because, you know, Super Bowl Sunday, man, I, I wonder what they're going to dump then. The information that she had on the, on the, on her, on her hard drives, uh, the hard drive is just amazing. And I will say this, the, the investigation about the 650,000 emails, the, the server, the Huma Abid, Abedin factor, the Anthony Weiner factor, that's not done. Okay. I can tell you with every degree of certainty that there exists out there multiple, and I mean multiple copies of those emails on hard drives or shall I say devices that are capable of storing those emails. And, and this comes from a from a source, a good source, a source close to the individuals who had custody or access and custody of the the hardware. These people are not playing around. They've got the they've got the emails, copies of the emails. There, the, it's my understanding, just from the information I'm getting from my sources, they're waiting to see what the Trump Justice Department will do what they intend to do. 
So, uh, now, so all of this, when you consider the emails that uh, just released yesterday, the 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 fact that that none of the major media sources, the New York Times, the Washington Post, there's no one linking, no one talking about this. Um, and and that should be a story by itself. I, I do believe. So, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm just telling you right now. I, I believe that uh, I believe that that the lack of the reporting is, in fact, a news story by itself. Folks, uh, I want to thank you, by the way, for your patience as we're as we're regrouping here from our uh, from our outage from I guess it was now about uh, nine days ago. Uh, so we will be back. We'll be back to, tomorrow. Steve Quayle is going to be on in the course in Standale, um, but we'll be back up Wednesday. Uh, we had the option of going up today on video, and I thought, you know. Let's not do it. Let's just do it right. So, if you're looking at this YouTube, um, if, if, if you're looking at this at the YouTube and saying, "Well, where are they?" Well, it's we'll be back up, but we want to do it right. Um, but that's that's about. I, I know it's, and I want to thank everyone who has helped us out too. It was an expensive repair. Um, believe it or not, something like this it runs about ten thousand dollars to repair. Just, just to give you an idea. My only question is again, how many, how many mortgages can you get on the on one piece of property? But, but uh, I just want to thank everyone for uh, for your support, whether it's a prayer or it, it was great. Uh, thank you so much, everyone who's, who's helped us financially to keep us on the air. And that's the other thing too. And I've been hearing from people who are watching events unfold in the landscape. People like Greg Jackson and others. You know, David Seaman uh, did a, a YouTube video not too long ago about his PayPal assets or his PayPal being frozen. Uh, and of course, Tara from Reality Calls, uh, Brittany Pettibone, and, and others. Those people in journalists, citizen independent journalists who are using functions like PayPal and to to support their research, their their funding is getting cut off, and that's important. It really is important that we understand that. Uh, Greg, I want to say thank you so much. Yeah, uh, David Seaman has talked about it, and you know we've seen our own personnel. We have seen some bumps in the road with respect to PayPal and others. Another method. So just understand, we are in the fight of our lives. We're talking about, uh, we are fighting this moniker titled fake news. And we have been obviously accused of of peddling fake news and peddling fear porn and all this. And and I think we're pretty measured in in our analysis of the news. I really do. I think that we're, we're... we're right. I think we're right there. We're providing enough information out there, enough analysis that you're not getting by the mainstream media, and, and we're not doing it in, in a in a hair and fire kind of way. But when you see when you see uh, citizen journalists like Brittany Pettibone and like uh, 
all the Pettibone sisters being attacked online and having their sources of funding uh, tinkered with. And, and David Seaman, same thing, independent journalist, uh, having his sources of funding cut off. And you see that this censorship by uh, asymmetrical warfare. And, and you see the, the, the people getting really, really hammered because they're reporting the truth. A couple of things spring to mind. Number one, that the mainstream media is really becoming more and more irrelevant. And number two, the globalist powers, the powers that control the corporate side of things, they're very, not just desperate, but they're also extremely, uh, well, desperate, but they're extremely vicious in going after people. So that's why I, and, and I, that's why I, every time I hit my knees at night and in the morning, I, I thank each and every one of you. I thank you for listening and I thank you for your support. We all do here. Because this is no longer a game. It never was, but I, I guess that's pretty poor assessment of things. This is no longer just a minor trivial you know, harassment kind of thing. This is going after your livelihood. And here's the thing that, 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 you know, people should know. There, there are people who just out of revenge, for example, uh, file complaints with different agencies, state, federal agencies, whatever. And, and, and most agencies can see through this, you know, uh, when they get five or six complaints that are unrelated, uh, if some state agency does, think of it like this. Think of, think of your, your, your ex-wife calling the IRS or that's, that's really not a, your ex-wife might know something. Um, you know, you're somebody that you hacked off calling the IRS and saying, Hey, this guy's cheating on his taxes. I mean, all of this is happening with, with the, the citizen journalists against the citizen journalists. This is not, again, it's being ramped up. Institutions, state, federal, local, they're being weaponized by our enemies. And this is what we have to fight with every day, every day, every day, every day. So we want to thank you for sticking by us. Folks, you're listening to the Hagman Hagman Report. Oh, we're going to be right back. You stay right where you're at. Don't forget, check HagmanReport.com and Hagman and Hagman for show information. More on the other side. Stay with us. of the Hagman and Hagman Report. You know, again, I want to thank everyone for your belief and your support in us, with us, for us. Thank you so much for your financial support. If that's, if you've sent, uh, if you're supporting us financially, we, we cannot thank you enough. Um, you know, four or five years ago when we first started this, I had no idea the cost, but man, it's, it's expensive to do research and, and to bring news. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
uh, from the bottom of our hearts. And uh, even if, if even if it's just a prayer, thank you for that, or or a kind word on a note on the back of a napkin. It doesn't matter. Thank you. We really appreciate all of that. We we really do. You know, I had mentioned earlier about the cold weather elite island resorts. Let me tell you something here. Uh, I looked out the window and uh, this morning when I was getting up, it was still, I mean, it was way dark, you know, 4, 4.30 and and boy, the snow was just whipping around and, and and I I know that that's the way it is for the most most of the country. It's cold. My goodness, 11 degrees. Would you like to start your new year relaxing on the beach instead of getting, instead of just going through January, for example, working. Oh. Hey, this is a new year. It's a new you. You can treat yourself to a refreshing tropical getaway. Well, I found this amazing getaway and an even more amazing price. The Pineapple Beach Club in Antigua. Now, for just $149 per person per night plus a $250 resort credit, you can enjoy an adults only. That means 16 and up, okay? All-inclusive getaway on a white sandy beach. Go to pineapplebeachclub.com to make your reservation today. And just let me tell you really quickly a little bit more about the resort and about the island. All-inclusive meals and snacks and beverages. Yes, even the glass of wine at dinner, the alcohol that is. Water sports, daily entertainment. It's all-inclusive. Includes all taxes and gratuity. No hidden fees anywhere. Uh, they've got five restaurants, three lounges. They've got two freshwater pools. I can go on and on. And you know that credit I referenced, the $250 credit? It can be used for sailing trips or, hey, how about some romantic romantic dining? A gift shop, safari tour, spa services, you name it. What a fantastic deal. So are you ready to leave the frosty weather behind and get some well-deserved R&R? Don't wait. This offer does expire soon. Go to pineapplebeachclub.com or call 800 800- Seven seven two eight seven one one to book your all-inclusive stay. Again, for one hundred and forty-nine dollars dollars per night per person, ages sixteen and up. You cannot beat that price. You can enjoy everything I just mentioned and more, and and you'll get a two hundred and fifty dollars resort credit. That's pineapplebeachclub.com. See the website for complete details. Pineapplebeachclub.com. You know, as and especially when we think about we have really more winter ahead of us and frosty weather. So I definitely, man, I'd be I'd be out there with my uh, if I had the time, uh, you know, with sand between my my little tootsies there, right? Um, you know, th- th- this is interesting. As we move along, some other things that were not covered, and I think that need to be covered. We are facing war with Russia. Now, I was talking to Dave Hodges about this before. But you remember the murder of the Russian diplomat, the Russian ambassador in Turkey, right? The shooting death. That was, that was, I mean, bam, that was right there. The, uh, the shooting death of the Russian ambassador to Turkey. Well, we have another diplomat dead. 
top Russian diplomat, Andrei Malinin, was found dead in his Athens home just weeks after, of course, weeks after the uh, previous assassination I referenced. He, he was found by embassy staff on the floor of his bedroom, 54 years old. Not sure how he was, not sure why he died. This is, now this is pretty interesting. Again, this comes in the wake of the uh, assassination of Andrei Karloff, who was shot dead by a Turkish policeman while giving a speech last month at the art gallery. Well, quickly, the Athens police said, wait a minute, eh, there's no real evidence here of violent injury, and hence, no, not, I don't think he was murdered. We don't know why he died. 54 years old. A police spokesman did say, at first sight, we're talking about natural causes. Perhaps. But it's interesting, I, I, I feel, that you're looking at these diplomats turning up dead. Uh, we are fighting, we are engaged in asymmetrical warfare. And we are, in, in my view anyway, when you look at what's taking place with with respect to the troop movements, okay, in, in uh, NATO troop movements, for example, if you look at the, at the geopolitical uh, picture for a moment and, and look at what's taking place with respect to uh, the movements that are taking place near Poland, uh, some of the NATO troops and special forces kind of moving closer. In fact, moving more, uh, there's more troop movements now that threaten Russia at that in any time recent in the Cold War. So, there's something taking place behind the scenes here. And I've had many, many, many people ask me, you know, are we headed for war? And, and are we headed for war with Russia? Could this be something that's going to happen in advance of Trump's inauguration? I don't think that, I really don't think that's the case. I, here's what I think is, is taking place. I, I believe that what's, what's happening here is that there's, there's a, a deliberate increase between the United States and NATO countries and Russia. I believe that uh, one of the huge things that's taking place, of course, the, the troop movements, are the economic, the, there, there's an economic war taking place. And a lot, a lot of people aren't focused on that either. They're looking at just the obvious, the, the troop movements. And yes, that's important. The troop movements are important. But what about, uh, you know, what about the economic fights, the wars? That we're looking at the economy. I, I I truly believe that we have that that we are looking at a um, an energy war. Um, we're looking at uh, an economic war. And what's the best way to bring down the United States? Not not militarily. I I, I don't agree at all. I, I agree that it's going to be through an economic disaster. And, and perhaps the collateral effect from perhaps a, uh, a war with Russia. So, that's kind of what I, 
what I'm looking at here geopolitically, but I think it's going to be dumped on, and I think it's it's. Uh, I, I think I think it's going to be blamed on Trump. Whatever happens, I think Trump is being set up for a fall, whether it's economic or whether it's geopolitical. It doesn't matter, whatever it is. And, and they're all, you know, it was interesting as well. I, I was, I happened to see a couple of, uh, of, uh, political postings about the 25th Amendment where some college university professors are, are saying that, that Trump is mentally unfit. And, and they cited, it's interesting because I, I watched one video where there was three citations of presidents who were unfit during their their uh, term as president. Franklin Pierce, who lost an 11-year-old son during uh, be, between the time he was elected and right before his inauguration. It rendered him, I mean, just useless. Coolidge, who lost a 16-year-old son to blood poisoning and sepsis. And, of course, Abraham Lincoln. The, the three named by at least one professor were said to said to be uh, failures or, or incapable under the 25th amendment of succession that is uh, and, and should have been uh, replaced there the, the the academia out there is attempting to make the argument that that Trump is not mentally fit just so you know as if you don't know already I I was uh, townhall.com an interesting place uh there's an author writing for townhall.com Kurt uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name Schlichter perhaps anyway he wrote about against the tyranny of so-called experts this kind of reminded me the the those professors, the, the people in academia talking about the mental impairment of or the unfit nature of Trump reminded me of of this article where it appeared on Town Hall it, stating that America's elite, that collection of these well the 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 people who really command the highest aspects of our politics, our culture, they're in crisis. Now, he writes this, and I'm going to quote this exactly, okay? America's elite, that collection of puffed-up mediocre individuals who recently held the undisputed command of the height of our politics and culture is in crisis. Its unbroken track record of failure has finally stirred the rest of America from its coma. The normal's are now awake. That's us. The elitists are being rejected. Now, they're unused to this accountability. So they're in a tizzy over the way people are not only blaming, uh, blaming, um, uh, the, the, the failures, but they're taking steps. The people are taking steps concrete absolute steps to restrict their power 
it, it not just by electing Donald Trump. It's ignoring the media, ignoring Hollywood, ignoring the cabal of experts who presume to tell us how to live and how to think and how to work and how to dress and how to do everything. And it's about time. It's a great article, by the way, but, but, uh, this does put things in perspective, I believe. And it's, it's kind of humorous too because, uh, the author does write that the best thing about being a member of the elite is that you really don't have to do anything to become one. You, you can be born one no matter how drum, <laughs> dumb or drug-addled you are. If you're a Kennedy, you're elite regardless of how many times you blow the bar exam. Woo. Or you can become one by getting in the right school. Remember, a Harvard degree does not mean you did well at Harvard. Everyone at Harvard does well where A's are participation trophies. And isn't that the truth? It's just getting in that matters. And it's that club. That's the Ivy, Ivy League club. Now, you see, you see, this, now he gets into the heart of what I was saying earlier. The elites having been called out for their failures are now trying to rebrand themselves as experts. And that's exactly what is taking place. Experts in news. And I, folks, I truly, I cast, I must tell you that I do believe that the issue of fake news today, that is going to be so critical in 2017. That's going to be a huge story. That, the quote unquote fake news and how the corporate sellout media handles fake news what's determined to be fake news to me is going to set the stage arrange the game board arrange the playing field for which everything else can be conducted whether it be war or economic collapse so when i'm asked for example what will be the story of 2017 it's not it's not the obvious it's not the covert Fighting, we'll say, or hey, who knows, a civil war, a war, invasion, bombs blowing up, Israel, you know, being invaded or bombed. It's not all of that, but it is all of that. It's more. It's the undergirding of all of that. And what undergirds all of that? It's the fake news operational uh, characterizations. So, when someone says, oh, that's fake news, you know, I've got to look at that, and I've got to say, wait a minute, why are they saying that? I mean, uh, I'm not talking about things from the onion, of course, you know, the satirical stuff. If someone points to an article that talks about, like, well, like we talked about last week, like Pizzagate, for example, we'll, we'll use Pizzagate for an example. Oh, it's fake news. And my goodness, we know that fake news can hurt, hurt people. It's serious. Innocent people are being harmed. Just take a look at what Pizzagate. My goodness. Okay, that that is the platform, in my view, on which all of this will be constructed. So, if, for example, there is a war or an economic collapse. And when I say an economic collapse, it doesn't have to be a total lights out, that's it, game over, you know, 
I'm talking about bank failures here and there and inability to take money out of an ATM for extended periods of time, bank holidays. For example, citizen journalists being denied access to funds via electronic means, PayPal, for example. All of this based on the platform of fake news. That's why it's so important to me. And I think people really, in my view anyway, people need to understand those people who are crying the loudest about, in quotation mark, fake news are, are, are the people perhaps responsible for or facilitating the covering up of the, uh, of the real news. There's different motives there as well. Some for profit, some for personal gain and recognition. But that, folks, I believe. So I hope you understand the reason why I put so much emphasis on fake news. And don't forget about what Andrew Kerr said. We were talking about the, uh, <coughs> excuse me, the part, the NDAA and the propaganda on page 547 of the NDAA where now the government can can actually funnel propaganda to its citizens. You see, the, the purveyors of the characterization of, quote, fake news conveniently don't talk about things like that. They omit things like that. But again, all of this that, that we're referring to, and I, and I don't really think that we can, at this point in time in our history, I don't think we can look at any single event as isolated. That's not to say everything is related, but I think it would be more, uh, I, I, from an investigative point of view, I think it would be better to look at the entire field of play, the entire arena, the entire venue, and then to, to take events, and if they're unrelated, you can, you can kind of push them by the wayside. But there is a cabal at the very epicenter of, of the globalist elite power, people of power, that are attempting to change the narrative, the news narrative, or omit completely what's really taking place to our detriment meanwhile claiming that the independent journalists are detrimental to the safety and security of the United States that's exactly what the NDAA did the new propaganda rules this is exactly what's taking place so they've got to prep the field and they're doing it through this operational tactic. They're prepping the field. We've seen where the CIA, and just look at Operation Mockingbird. If you, and, and that's something folks you can go to and, and take a look at and understand. If you think, for example, that Operation Mockingbird ended with uh, George H.W. Bush in, in any form, I'm sorry to tell you it didn't. And that's, it could be your homework assignment to, to, to look up Operation Mockingbird and the history behind it in, in, in the details. But it's important in our, it's important to our and in our history. 
So this is what's really taking place. So the the bottom line is the fact that uh, that and they go back to the article from uh, and I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, uh, Kurt Schlichter from Town Hall again, where you've got now academia. Uh, well, the uh, academia is kind of taking hold, shall we say? And telling us how to think, and this goes back to Bernays, and, and it's so interesting when you look back. And I know Paul McGuire talks about Bernays and such, and and uh, all of the propaganda that we've been subjected to over the years. But this, folks, to me, is huge. Um, and and don't forget, you know, for example. When we look at the threat, when we look at the crisis, crises, multiple crises going on in the Middle East, we look at we look at uh, ISIS, for example, the growth of ISIS. Well, obviously Obama, and it doesn't take it really does not take a. a you don't have to be a professor in geopolitical studies to understand that the policies of the West, including Obama at the tip of the spear, and Clinton, the State Department, and Kerry, as well as the Gang of Eight in, inside the Beltway, that includes uh, both sides of the aisle, we, or they, I shouldn't say we, they founded, funded, and facilitated ISIS, and frankly, they lied about it. History. You know, uh, it's interesting how when you look at history, who writes history? Well, it's it's the victors who write history or the people in power who write history. It, Obama uh, had, uh, had... had uh, told CNN that the rise and expansion of the Islamic State was not on his intelligence radar. The legacy of Barack Obama aired recently on on CNN. And uh, Obama said that his administration underestimated the Islamic State terrorist group. The reason I bring this up, of course, is because of going back to what I mentioned earlier about the management of fake news. And this kind of segues nicely into the guest we have coming up. Because the entire, obviously, we we know, we have learned or should have learned from what happened to JFK. That we didn't get the true story then. We still don't have the true story now. But the template is there. Okay, now, now, Abraham Bolden is not going to appear uh, for the purposes of revealing what happened on November 22nd, 1963. That's not the case, no. But to talk about a segment that has been, back then it would have been labeled as fake news, it's relevant and it's a nice segue. Much like Obama, ISIS, Syria, 
the chaos in the Middle East and much like the domestic situation. So we're going to get a great look into that, into uh, into what transpired. And not only was Abraham Bolden the first African-American Secret Service agent on the presidential protective detail, when he went to blow the whistle about the Chicago plot, he was imprisoned. That's right. He spent a number of years in prison, federal prison, on a separately related matter. His book, The Echo from Dealey Plaza, tells the tale. So I'm excited to bring him on here shortly. I respect that man. I, I got to give him a lot of respect. I mean, I really do. I read his book. It's a fantastic book, and he's a he's he's got, he's got more character than uh, than most people could ever think of having. Folks, go to Homeland or uh, go, go to HagmanReport.com. That's HagmanReport.com. John Robertson wrote an incredible story about the uh, Jackie Robertson of the Secret Service. That being Abraham Bolden. Read that. It, it will give you great insight into tonight's guest. In fact, check HagmanReport.com frequently. Bookmark it, please. Also, subscribe to our YouTube channel. And also follow us on social networking as well. And again, thank you so much for, for your belief and your trust in us. There's so much more, so much more that we are up against this year. Do not think that because Trump is in office that it's going to be all good and fine. It ain't. We need to gird up, pray up, saddle for battle. Stay right where you're at. This edition of the Hagman and Hagman Report. Boy, are we are you in for a treat? You know, we we can learn so many things from uh, different people, and a few people really. The, the more you look at people today, um, sometimes it's hard to respect certain people. But I've got a lot of respect for our guest right now. His name is Abraham Bolden. If that name is not a household name, boy, it should be. And I'll tell you why. Mr. Bolden was the, uh, was actually the first Secret Service agent for the presidential protective detail. That took place under, uh, the, uh, administration of John F. Kennedy. It's, his story is fascinating. I have his book. He wrote a book called The Echo from Dealey Plaza. And I'm just going to quote just really quickly before we bring him on. I just want to, I just want to tell you what, what, what this, what his appearance is not about. His appearance is not about who killed JFK. That's not what this is about. 
He's not going to say, and he can't say for certain who fired the fatal shots that day, November 22nd, 1963, but what he can say is the fact that he met John F. Kennedy and shook his hand, looked into his eyes in the basement of of a hotel when Kennedy was a a senator running, preparing to run for, for president. And, you know, when you look someone in the eyes, you can tell what's in their heart many times and he sensed in his heart as many people did that uh, he that Kennedy understood the troubles of the common man and shared the pain of the downtrodden and oppressed people don't forget this was a time of civil rights of civil strife of, of, of racial tension and riots and such you go back to the 50s and my earliest memory and, and I, I, I don't know if I've ever told this on air my earliest memory of that time not well of that time was I was traveling my, my parents were traveling um, and we were in Atlanta and I was a young boy and I, I told my dad I, I've got to go to the bathroom you know so he said okay and I saw a sign I, I, I don't remember it with precision again I was young young boy and I started walking to the bathroom and he grabbed me he said no you can't go there I said well it's a bathroom you know why not no your bathroom's over here and I didn't understand it because see, back then they had different bathrooms for quote colored people and for whites. That was the time that it was during that time that Abraham Bolden served as the on the presidential protection detail for John F. Kennedy, and he did so at, at personal cost. That he's going to tell us about. Um. He's got an amazing story, and I don't, I don't want to take any more of his time up, but uh, his book is called The Echo from Dealey Plaza. If you want information about, we'll say, number one, a plot that is not really understood or told, that's the book to get. But if you want a book about information about the time and about the events leading up to the assassination, as well as a very inspirational to- uh, story, it's the book to get as well. I learned more from the Echo from Dealey Plaza uh, than, than a lot of so-called expert JFK books combined. But it was a different sense of learning. Mr. Bolden, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you for inviting me, Mr. Ackman. Uh, call me Doug, sir. Uh, okay, and, Doug. Ah, man, what an incredible story you have written in your book, The Echo from Dealey Plaza. And folks, you can uh, get his book right off. Just go to HagmanReport.com and click on the link to his book or in the program description. Links all over the place. It's available on Amazon. I highly recommend it. Uh, but by way of introduction, you were, you were born in 1935 to, uh, uh to, to strict parents. January 1st, by the way, happy birthday recently. Recent birthday. No, no, January 19th is my birthday. Oh, January 19th, yeah. I'm sorry. And, and then they put another president in an office the next day. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Always. All right. Gotcha. Well, in advance, happy birthday. Better to be early than late anyway. But, but okay, yeah. so... So, yeah, you know, I'm going to just let you tell your story, if you don't mind. You've told it so many times and with such grace before. Uh, go ahead and tell your story about your upbringing and how you how you came to be the first African-American Secret Service agent on the uh, presidential protection detail. Well, you have already given um, um, 
forward, you might as well say, to the book The Echo from Dealey Plaza. And uh, it does contain quite a bit of information concerning the assassination of the president. And more importantly, there were some procedures and efforts leading up to that assassination on November the 22nd that the American people should be aware of. Now, one thing the American people must know the truth concerning what happened on November the 22nd, because in my estimation, that uh, date announced a change in the direction that America was going. It was a horrible incident. It was a well-planned incident, and it has consequences even in our electoral processes up to the minute. America, that was the time that America changed direction. And I don't know if we'll ever recover the direction that the President Kennedy was taking us. Now, I was born, as I said, on January the 19, 1935, in East St. Louis, Illinois. East St. Louis at that time was just like any other southern state. It, uh, it uh, was north, but in Illinois, here in East St. Louis, Illinois, where I was born, it was just like living in Mississippi. We had uh, separate high schools. There were signs that were posted in most of your stores that were uh, color and white. We had a division in the, in the sections in our library. Jobs were very plentiful, but they were of a degraded status so far as the black people were concerned. If you were not a teacher or a preacher, uh, then you were a laborer. Now, my father did everything that he could possible to give us a good education. He was very strict when it came to that. He wouldn't buy us anything for foolishness. However, anything that was educational, my father and my mother would make a sacrifice and make sure that we had it. When, when I was growing up, it kind of concerned me in East St. Louis about the crime problem that we were having all the way back then, and I'm talking about in the 1940s now, when I began the grade school. There were a lot of cuttings. There were combats between the races, and there were fights among each other in the African-American neighborhoods. And this sort of concerned me even as a young child. And it made such an impression on me that I set out at that very time before I was 12 years old. In my subconscious, I wanted to find out what could be done to somewhat stem the tide in which this uh, country was going and the crime problem that we're facing even now today. So I oh. go ahead. No, I, I just you, you know I this is such a rich, although um, it, this is a rich part of our history, an important part of our history, and I'm glad you're laying this out because a lot of our listening audience has you know the demographics don't 
bear out the experiences that you had. And I, I just want to say thank you for laying this out, laying the groundwork out, because uh, I, you know what? I never want to see us go back to that time period ever again. And uh, you, you just said some important things. I, I'm not going to interrupt you anymore, sir. I apologize. You keep going because th- this is so important. No, that's all right. That's all right. Will the audience uh, have an opportunity to call in because some things I uh, am going to say, maybe they would like to have questions. Will the audience have an opportunity to call in? What we'll do is is this. Um, we, we had a recent uh, malfunction, a computer malfunction. What we'll do is this. We're going to open, folks, questions to studio at Hagman and Hagman.com. Any questions for our guest? Abraham Bolden, send it to studio at Hagman and Hagman.com. You know the routine, folks. You know the routine. I will ask him on the air. How's that, uh, Mr. Bolden? Yes, that's fine. That's fine. Right. But to get back to what I, w- I was saying, there were, you might as well say, monitors or, or people who were interested in the welfare or the advancement of my people as I was being raised up. And two of those uh, people were happened to be policemen, Lucius Hogan, who was a detective with the St. Louis Police Department, and Leo J. Gooden. Uh, these were men who were masters at guiding young men and who gave us an idea and an impetus to want to be something in life. And never will forget those uh, men. Now I studied music when my when you turn nine years old in the Bolden household, you had to take music lessons. So I took piano lessons like my sisters and brothers did. And at the age of about twelve years old, I began to play the trumpet. All the time I had this yearning in the back of my mind to want to do something to help mankind. And I became a very religious young man at an early age and then began to study the Bible and other religious material in an effort to find out why man was losing, it seemed to me that they were losing their mind. They were losing a great portion of the love that one would expect between human beings. As I said, I became a very good trumpet player. Now, on my way to becoming a trumpet player, my brother was in the Lincoln High School Band, and he played the tuba. So one day we were going to a band practice, a late afternoon band practice, and he would let me carry the bale of his tuber while he carried the other part that had the baths. It was one of those big wraparound bass horns that a lot of people call. And I would go to the practice and I would listen to the band members practice. Now this is very important because when we went to the band practice, there was a young man who was seated in the corner, and he was also a trumpet player, dark-skinned, wavy-haired young man, about 16 or 17 years old. And when Mr. Buchanan, who was the band director, 
when he would have a pause in the practice of what they were doing, of the music that they were playing, this young man kept playing. And it sort of disturbed, disturbed Mr. Buchanan. So after that the band practice was over, I was on my way home with my brother, and I asked my brother, I said, Dan, that was his name, Daniel, who is that guy in the, in the uh, corner who keeps playing? When Mr. Buchanan stops everyone else from playing, and my brother said, oh, that guy, oh, he, that guy's name is Miles Davis. Now, you know who Miles Davis was, isn't that right? Are you familiar with Miles <laughs> Davis? And he became one of the greatest trumpet players the world has ever known. Yep. And so I walked over to Miles and I told him, you know, I, I play the trumpet. I want to play the trumpet. And, and Miles never said a word. He just turned and went on and did what he was doing and, and uh, walked away. But whoever would have thought that uh, Miles Davis would have, uh, become one of the premier trumpet players in the world. But after that, I went off and graduated from uh, junior high school in the Lincoln High School, won quite a few medals in music. But this idea of becoming uh, a, a person learned in the psychology of the, of the criminal and wanting to do something to help the race of people, all races of people, not just black people. We had white criminals there. Buster Workman was one of the biggest gangsters uh, in East St. Louis, and he was uh, mixed up with uh, Mayor English, and uh, they were just running things, and it, it was a hood type of town, a very fast type of town. So after I graduated, uh, I got a scholarship to two universities. One was the Milliken University, and the other one was the Lincoln University in in uh, in uh, Jefferson City, Missouri. So I chose Lincoln University because I wanted to be very close to the problem of my people and continue on the way. Well, I majored in music, and in 1956, I graduated cum laude. Uh, with a bachelor's degree in music composition. But as fate would have it, when I graduated, I moved back to St. Louis, Illinois, and this nagging idea of becoming in police work or in criminal psychology just, just kept uh, hammering at me. It was something that I just couldn't control. It was deep into my psychology to want to do something to benefit the people. So when I had a job offer to go to southern Missouri for a teaching experience, and my wife happened to be reading the Post-Dispatch, St. Louis Post-Dispatch newspaper, and she saw an ad in the paper where Pinkerton National Detective Agency was looking for a special agent. Well, knowing in that time, in 1955 and 56, there were no black Pinkerton National Detective agents. So my wife, who was um, a longtime friend of mine, Barbara Louise Bolden, she talked me into going over and applying for the job at Pinkerton National Detective Agency. 
So I went over one Monday morning and uh, I walked into the office and I told a young uh, white girl who was sitting at the desk, I said, I want to apply for the job as a pink and the national detective agent. And she says, we're not hiring. And I showed her the clippings of the paper that my wife had insisted uh, that I take with me. And I pulled it out of my lapel pocket and handed it to her. She said, well, we're not hiring people like you. Well, I understood that I had been, as I said, raised in East St. Louis. It was very prejudiced, and St. Louis, Missouri was just across the river. As a matter of fact, it was, at that time, it was more prejudiced than East St. Louis, if anything could uh, be such. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Now, when she told me that she wasn't hiring people like me, I understood what she meant. But there happened to be a Mr. Mertz, who was district director of the Secret Service from Michigan, from Detroit, Michigan. He was the district director, and he happened to be surveying the office in St. Louis at 705 Olive Street on the 12th floor. So he came out of the office, and he asked his secretary, he said, what's the problem here? And the young secretary told him that uh, I was looking for an application, but uh, there wasn't any jobs available. And Mr. Merch said, yes, there are. He said, send him into the office, give him an application, let him uh, fill out the application, and send him in the office to talk to me. And that's what happened. I went into the office, Mr. Merch hired me on the spot and told me to understand that I would be the first black Pinkerton National Detective Agent and he wanted me to do a good job. They sent me to school, they prepared me on surveillance techniques and that began my career in police work. And after spending a year with the Pinkerton National Detective Agent, I went into the Illinois State Police at the inducement of my wife, who happened to see another job in the East St. Louis Journal newspaper and said that the state police are hiring. So I went into the uh, the uh, state police. My wife always looked out for me, and if it hadn't been for her, I don't know what would have happened to me, but uh, she was a very diligent and, and sensitive person, very loving. So after I spent about four years on the Illinois State Police and the Illinois State Police Vice Squad, President Kennedy was a U.S. Senator, and he came to Peoria in order to give an address at the courthouse there. So as the president uh, gave an address, as I said, I was a, a young state trooper then, and I happened to be there, and he impressed me so much with his sincerity that when I had an opportunity to work with one of the Secret Service agents on one of the details, the vice details that I was uh, uh, assigned to do, I asked Mr. Fred Baskerman, who was the special agent in charge of the Springfield office, do they have any Negro Secret Service agents uh, in Washington, D.C.? 
He says, no, I don't think that they have a Negro Secret Service agent, but why don't you uh, make an application and see how it comes out? So that's what I did. I made an application, and on October the 30th of 1960, I was appointed a Secret Service agent and transferred from Peoria, Illinois, to Chicago, Illinois. Now, it was in Chicago, Illinois, that after President Kennedy won the election, he beat uh, President uh, Nixon by about 8,000 votes in Cook County, and that, uh, that allowed the President Kennedy to take the whole state and all the electoral votes. President Kennedy was scheduled to come to Chicago here on April the 28th of 1961 to McCormick Place where he had a big political meeting going there in the convention room in order to thank Mayor Daley and his uh, goon squad, I mean his political workers, <laughs> for, <laughs> for getting out the vote. See, in Chicago, there was a saying at the time, vote early and vote often. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was a political process here that everybody knew about. But anyway, President Kennedy had won the election, so right away he was coming to Chicago on April 28th of 1961 for this, this grand meeting. I was a new agent, the first African-American agent appointed, uh, and I was uh, stationed in Chicago, Illinois. Now, I ran into some segregation when I first came to Chicago as a United States Secret Service agent. Many of them were from the South. There were 13 of us assigned to the Chicago office. There were a few Southerners there that uh, really did not want me around as an agent. As a matter of fact, even the special agent in charge uh, didn't take to me very kindly. But anyway, what happened was this. When the president was, whenever he came to a different district other than Washington, D.C., whoever, whatever agents were assigned to that district would have to help with the protection of the president. Now, normally on the post where they assigned me at McCormick Place in front of a washroom, they would have a uniformed policeman because it wasn't a very important job. A plainclothes Secret Service agent's job normally would be one of more responsibility, but they replaced me on the first floor of McCormick Place and put me down by the washroom and put the the uniformed officer, Chicago police officer, at the door where I would have been, where the president would have had to pass right before me, before that he would enter, enter the convention hall. So what they were actually trying to do was hide me and put me in a place where it would be slim to none chances of me meeting the president of the United States standing in front of a washroom. But as fate would have it at 8.30 p.m. on April 28th, 1961, I heard all of the commotions of, uh, flow above me, 
and I knew from the door slamming and how the photographers were scampering about in the flashes of their camera lights that the president had arrived. And looking up the steps towards the entrance to McCormick Place, the convention room, I looked up and saw President Kennedy coming down the steps, surrounded by every political bigwig in Chicago and Cook County. The first thing that the president wanted to do when he came to McCormick Place was use the washroom and there I stood. So the president walked and came down the steps and he stopped right in front of me. He surprised me. He stopped right in front of me and asked me a question. He said, are you a Secret Service agent or are you one of Mayor Daly's specials, uh, Mayor Daly's finest? I said, I'm a Secret Service agent, Mr. President. President extended his hand and we shook hands. And one of the agents who were with him, uh, Dick Jordan, so that's Abraham Bolin. He's a new agent here. Sir, Mr. Bolden, Mr. Bolden, I'm going to have to stop right there. We're at, at, the, at the bottom of the hour break. This is fascinating. We're going to pick it up right on the other side. You're listening to Abraham Bolden, author of The Echo from Dealey Plaza. I'll wait until you hear this, folks. Stay right where you're at. Unfiltered, you know. Ask and ye shall receive. Uh, my goodness, uh, our guest is Abraham Bolden, the author of the Echo from Dealey Plaza. We already have. Uh, we, we've got questions coming in from people all across the United States and Canada. But get this: Central America, Germany, France, and Australia already lining up asking to ask questions uh, of our guest via our email studio at hagman and hagman dot com. I want to thank you for so much for your participation. Where uh apparently people never sleep, especially in Europe where it's late or early, depending on your way of thinking. But uh Abraham Bolden, the author of The Echo from Dealey Plaza, oh what a great what a fantastic informational and inspirational read to be sure. I own a copy and I and I just uh you won't find a, 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 wow, it's just a great book. And Mr. Bolden spent the first segment talking about, uh, his early life. And of course, you know, the, it's a different time back then. Well, maybe not, as we see the racial tensions, uh, uh building again. But nonetheless, here, here is a, a man who, uh, went through Pinkerton security as an investigator. And, and then, of course, Illinois State Police. And then, now he was the first African-American Secret Service agent. And they stationed him in Chicago in, in advance, uh, in preparation of uh, uh, John F. Kennedy's appearance there in the basement bathroom. And wouldn't you know it, President Kennedy, upon arrival, used the restroom. Had to use the restroom, the washroom. 
And it was in the basement, so he walked down the stairs. And who does he run into? Who does President John F. Kennedy run into but Abraham Bolden? That's where Mr. Bolden left off. I'm going to let him pick up right where he left off. Sir, go right ahead, and thank you so much for, for staying with us and for telling your story. Thank you. So the president looked me in the eye, and he asked a question. said, Mr. Bolden, and that's what he called me from then on. Mr. Bolden, has there ever been a Negro assigned to the White House detail protecting the president? I said, not to my knowledge, Mr. Mr. President. He said, would you like to be the first? I said, yes, sir, Mr. President. And I just couldn't believe my ears. See, here was the President of the United States. I had seen him on TV, I don't know how many times, and he was standing in front of me with this, this, this appearance of sincerity that he had, the warmness that he exuded around him, and, and it was just magnificent because, uh, the, Black people during that period of time, uh, called Negroes, they loved President Kennedy because they, they saw a sincerity in President Kennedy and a hope for change in the direction that America was going. They thought that the solution to many of the problems would lie under the jurisdiction of President Kennedy if he could just get in office. So the president, uh, in shaking my hand said, I look forward to seeing you in Washington, D.C. I said, thank you, Mr. President. And on June the 6th of 1961, I was summoned to Washington, D.C. and became the first African-American assigned to the White House detail, Secret Service detail in Washington, D.C. Now, that was a great accomplishment uh, for me and my people during that time because it just so happened we were having the freedom bus rides going on. They were lynching uh, people in Mississippi. They were burning them alive. It seems as if the, the entire United States of America was aflame with racial hate and divide. And here I was walking into the White House making history at the impetus of the President of the United States. But when I arrived at the White House, I was not received very gracefully. There were Southerners surrounding the President who openly talked about him in very dis disparageable ways. They called him different names. They called him a nigger lover. They said that uh, the president was ruining the country because he was siding with the integrationists and uh, they just had horrible things to say about this wonderful man who was the president of the United States. In the meantime, President Kennedy, as he was uh, going back and forth in the White House, he would stop and talk to me almost every day that I would see him. He would always ask me a question about Mayor Daley, or how did I like Washington, D.C., or some questioning. And so I happened to be standing out of, in front of the Oval Office one day. I was on guard, stationed right in front of the door of the Oval Office. A cabinet meeting was 
breaking up, and he would Humphrey and Bear Goldwater came out of the Oval Office door. They left the door kind of cracked, and as I reached in to close the Oval Office door, the president saw me, and he said, Mr. Bowlin, I see you made it here. And he came out, he, uh, he had been talking to the Attorney General Robert, his brother. And he came out, he shook my hand again, said, let me introduce you to the, the, the who's here. And he introduced me to Hubert Humphrey. We shook hands for almost a minute. Hubert Humphrey was a real politician from Minnesota, and we just shook hands, and I thought he would he would never turn my hand to lose. Barry Goldwater was the opposite. He refused to touch my hand. However, that that was okay. I was just elated that the president had recognized me, and he told me to follow him. So we went about, he introduced me to Evelyn Lincoln, he introduced me to many other workers there, and, and some of the, uh, uh, Andrew Hatcher, who had become the first African American, uh, assistant press secretary. He was also making history, and we came to, uh, Pierre Solinger, who was the press secretary for President Kennedy. Pierre, he called Pierre and said, Pierre, I want you to meet somebody. Pierre came over and he says, I want to meet you to meet Abraham Bolden. So he's the Jackie Robinson of the Secret Service. And I, I was almost floored to tears with, with that remark that he made. But that was a very difficult time for me because the agents surrounding the president were talking about him in vicious terms. And they had lost focus on what their duties really were. And during that same time, we were getting a lot of threats in the office back in Chicago on the president's life. And here he was surrounded by agents who some of them hated him hated what he stood for, hated black people, hated uh, everybody except himself. And that was the climate on the White House detail. Now, what disturbed me more than anything else was when we went to Hyannisport, Massachusetts, and I bring this out in my book, President Kennedy introduced me to all the members of his family. And he also introduced me to several of the dignitaries who came to visit him while he was in Hansport, Massachusetts. Now, during the time that we were in Hansport, I overheard a conversation of agents who said that if an assassination attempt were made on President Kennedy, that they would not react, that they would let it happen because he deserved to die because of his stand on integration policies and that he was destroying the country. And I was mortified at hearing that. I, I couldn't believe my ears that agents who were responsible 
and given the job by the Congress of the United States of America to protect the presidency of the United States of America and agents who were saying that they would not protect the president if an assassination attempt were made. Well, when we got back to Washington, D.C. on July the 5th of 1961, I went straight into the chief of the United States Secret Service office, whose name was U.E. Bauman. And I told Mr. Bauman directly that the president would be assassinated unless the Secret Service took a new direction. I explained to him that the president's life was in deep trouble. I named the agents that who were in the discussion. Some of those agents were on the follow-up automobile when the president was indeed assassinated. And a couple of them, there were two of them who were on my shift, I work with, who were in that discussion. And when the president was assassinated in Dallas, Texas, they made no effort whatsoever to do their jobs. There was one agent from Miami, Florida. He was assigned to investigate an assassination plot against the president after it was found out that the two conspirators were talking on the telephone about how they were going to assassinate the president from a tall building using a rifle with a telescopic sight. The Secret Service knew about this conversation because we had an informant within the organization and we had tapped the telephone of this man Miltier the agent who investigated the that uh, conversation also was an agent who went to Houston Texas on November the 21st in order to do uh, a pre-scan investigation for the President Kennedy who was to go to Houston, Texas after he left Dallas, Texas. This agent came through Chicago on his way back to Miami, Florida after failing to follow up the investigation in Miami, Florida stopped in the Chicago office of the Secret Service and if he's alive today he knows that I'm telling the truth and said that the President of the United States should be killed. This was an agent of the United States Secret Service and anybody who want to doubt my word let them make an investigation. We have a lot of researchers who are interested in the assassination of the President all they have to do is see what agent did the advance work for the president in Houston, Texas, track his movements to Chicago, Illinois, and they can identify that agent themselves. I don't want to give out his name right now, but it was the same agent who did the advance work for the Houston visit of President Kennedy. 
that came through the Chicago office and said that the President Kennedy should be killed. Now that was the attitude of this agent. Now, I asked Mr. Bauman after I had explained to him what I had heard and how the agents felt about President Kennedy. I asked to be transferred back to Chicago as a field agent because while we were still in Hannesport, Massachusetts, one of the special agents in charge of the Secret Service, after we had come from the Kennedy compound, we were seated in the place where we were staying, watching TV, watching the news, and this special agent in charge, and his name was Harvey Henderson, looked at me and says, Bolden, and when I said what, he says, I want to tell you something, and don't you ever forget it. And this is in my book, The Echo from Dealey Plaza. You a nigger, you were born a nigger, you're going to die a nigger, you'll never be anything else but a nigger, so act like one. That's what a special agent in charge told me to my face looking at me and had nerve enough to draw back his coat that he was wearing to reveal his weapon. So under those circumstances, I asked to be transferred back to Chicago and be relieved, be relieved of my duties on the White House detail. Now when I came back to Chicago, I made a specific effort to advise a special agent in charge in Chicago who blew it off. Maurice G. Martinot blew it off. And in the meantime, we we're getting all of these threats about highly organized organizations, the Cuban DRE, other organizations, Miltier and his right wing group, Ku Klux Klan back group we were getting information that these people were scheming to assassinate the president and they were following in four specific cities that they were following the president that they were monitoring the president's movement one was Tampa, Florida the second was Miami, Florida. The third was Chicago, Illinois. The fourth was Dallas, Texas. There were teams of riflemen and conspirators who were following the president, tracking him, trying to get an opportunity <clears throat> to assassinate the president of the United States. And the Secret Service had this information we knew, I knew that the higher officials had to know much more than I knew about it. Now, we were sitting in the office in October of 1963. A call came in from a person who said she was the landlady of a rooming house and that in the process of cleaning up the room, she had discovered 
four rifles uh, with telescopic sights attached. We received that information from the FBI. The Secret Service Office, Mr. Martinau, who was special agent in charge, he wanted to blow it off. He said, oh, the lady's crazy, nobody's, you, you know, it just seems like they were lackadaisical about the president's life. They didn't care. And so after I had upbraided the special agent in charge because of his attitude about the protection of President Kennedy, and because of his reluctance to take it seriously, I knew I was putting my neck on under the guillotine, but somebody had to stand up. And I had an affinity with President Kennedy, and I had a, an affinity for the American people because that was our job, was to protect the presidency of the United States of America. And that's all that I was thinking about at the time. Kennedy, I love. But the democracy had to be protected. That's what I thought. Now, when they made an investigation of these uh, Cubans, there were two Cubans who were in Chicago and they had rented this room and they were being visited by two Europeans who were not of Cuban abstract. It seems as if that these people who were visiting these two Cubans were actually the controllers of the Cubans who were camped at this rooming house. The Secret Service started an investigation of the matter because President Kennedy was due to come to Chicago on November the 2nd of 1963. They blew the investigation and let these armed assassins, I call them, get away. If I can interrupt you, uh, Mr. Bolden, I, I, I just want to tell the audience, in his book, The Echo from Dealey Plaza, this part, I mean, I, I laughed. I laughed out loud when I was reading about how um, one of the agents blew the surveillance um, on this. I mean, your writing about this just... Is fabulous. Uh, I, I didn't. I didn't mean to interrupt, but I just. I, I thought uh, I should point out in your book again the echo from Dealey Plaza. Our guest Abraham Bolden, when he writes about this in his book, it's it's really a, a colorful tale, uh, a colorful accounting, I should say, of what happened. Go ahead, sir. Now, as I bring out in in the book that you just mentioned. I was very suspicious of the activities of the Secret Service, so what I did, although they did not let me take part of the investigation, I came home and I listened to what they were doing over my two-way radio of a squad car that I had use of at my house. And I listened to them on a two-way radio. They blew the investigation when one of the agents 
who was on the surveillance in the alley behind the house, his rooming house. His name was Gaylord Stocks, one of the agents. Drove past two of the suspects as they were loading something in the back of the car, which I believe were the rifles. And as he drove right past the car, you know, uh, Alice is not as wide as a street. He did not have his mic turned down, and the message from home base, that's what we call headquarters, was, do you see them? Do you know where they are? And, of course, these guys were alerted right away that this, this, this had to be a cop car. They, they were under surveillance. So they jumped in the car and they took off and we lost them. But a day after that, they did arrest one person. He claimed that he had no idea and was not involved in any attempt to assassinate the President of the United States. And you probably know that person from the Echo from Dealey Plaza. His name was Vali. He claimed that he was an ex-CIA agent and he claimed that he actually like the President of the United States. However, in the trunk of his car, he had a rifle with a telescopic sight. He had explosives in the trunk of his car. He had everything that it would take. And he worked along the route that the motorcade was supposed to take when the President came to Chicago on November the 11th, uh, the 2nd. Over 1963, he had a job that overlooked the expressway, just like Lee Oswald had a job that overlooked the, the same expressway, the expressway. But the expressway here is what we call now the Kennedy Expressway, and Vali worked in a building where he would have had the same type of shot that would be similar to that of the sixth floor of the school book depository. Now, the Chicago police arrested Vali, took him to the Secret Service office, and they interviewed Vali and turned him over to the Chicago police. After that time, Vali was not charged with anything, not even a weapons charge. He disappeared. We don't know what happened to him. I think he's probably dead now. But he was released without charge. I'm, I'm going to stop you right there, uh, Mr. Bolden. Uh, I'm going to stop you right there because we're approaching the break here at the top of the hour. Folks, you just heard Mr. Abraham Bolden, who's our guest. Again, the first African-American Secret Service agent and the first African-American Secret Service agent who served on the presidential protection detail under President Kennedy described to you the exact template used, that was in Chicago now, the exact template 
that appeared in Dallas, Texas. This was on November, uh, earlier in November, so I think November 2nd, he said, uh, of course, uh, and of course November 22nd was in Dallas. But four cities, Tampa, Miami, Chicago, Dallas, assassination teams. You're hearing it. This is a rich piece of history. Abraham Bolden is history. And I mean American history and a true American patriot. And I want to thank, publicly thank Bill McIntosh from Ocaso Media. Bill McIntosh, thank you. Thank you. You're a class act. Thank you so much. Bill McIntosh, Ocaso Media, for assisting us in arranging this interview, arranging this interview. We're going to be right back with Abraham Bolden. Stay right where you're at. Plaza, written by Abraham Bolden, a man who uh, I've got so much respect for, a man who uh, is a living, uh, breathing inspiration. Uh, you, you know, I'm not going to, I'm just, I, it's, it sounds so trite when you, when you say that. You know, it just sounds kind of trite, but let me just say that uh, I've got a lot of respect for Mr. Bolden, everything that he's gone through, and notice how he said look he's protecting the the institution the office of the presidency and how little regard at that time because of conflicts of ideology um how little regard the secret service agents at that time had for the protection of the president and and right the last segment he he named four cities Tampa Miami Chicago Dallas all with apparent active assassination plots well mr bolden fits into the chicago plot which is not really talked about that that much but needs to be and let me ask you a question with the race relation i'm going to just to the question of the audience kind of rhetorical question here with the relations we see today i'm just wondering are we and and the difference is not just in race but in ideologies could something like 1963 happen again and my answer is yes before we get back to our guest folks i just want to tell you that people everywhere are discovering the life-changing power of kangen water systems you can make your own healthy alkaline antioxidant drinking water that's rich in minerals purged of impurities right in your own home you've got to get one of these systems water by cindy.com water by cindy.com you know people everywhere they're discovering the, this life-changing power of a Kangen water system. And Water by Cindy, they've got the answers. Water is the most important substance in the world. But you can take at home. You, you don't need bottled water anymore. In fact, it, it, studies are out. It's not good for you anymore. The $13 billion bottled water industry, you don't need it. Bottled water is bad for the environment. So I could go on and on. But But the fact is this. You want to learn about how you can turn water into something that's really good for you go to waterbycindy.com that's waterbycindy.com one more time waterbycindy.com we have a system we like it and i don't endorse anything i don't personally use 
waterbycindy.com. Our guest is Andrew Bolden, his book, The Echo from Dealey Plaza, talking about the Chicago conspiracy now. Now, of course, uh, in his book, he, he names the names, talks about all of this. Uh, Mr. Bolden, go ahead and continue with this fascinating, fascinating story. You've got one, one man that, uh, well, uh, one man from the, uh, uh, rooming, that room house in, in custody. Um, no, go ahead, sir. Finish yeah, up. And, and by yeah. the way, the um, temple um, before Dallas was there. So go ahead, sir. Yes. Now, the president's visit to Chicago for that Army Air Force game that was to be, uh, played here in Chicago, uh, was canceled was canceled. The president did not come to Chicago because of the threat and the fact that the Secret Service had failed to identify those who were conspiring to kill the president if he came to Chicago. So his trip was called off. We were all in position uh, at the stadium, Soldier Field, for the visit of the president when the trip was abruptly called off because they said the president had a cold or some some excuse like that. But we all knew why the president was not going to come to Chicago. Now, <clears throat> on the 18th of November, 1963, I was called to Washington, D.C., and I was offered to go undercover in the Capitol for the Special Operations Division of the Internal Revenue. Now that would require a change in my name, a change in everything in my identification. They were going to, as, as a matter of fact, uh, make me a new person. I would have no connection with Abraham Bolin. They were going to give me a false identification. Now, at that time, I, I don't know what they thought that uh, about me, whether they thought that I was Ilyup or somebody, but uh, I wasn't going to fall for that because I knew I had complained too much about the, uh, these assassinations uh, things about the president that were being said and I didn't want to be in a position where I could be eliminated without a record of my elimination so I turned down the investigation and came back to Chicago on the 18th of November that was just a few days before the president was assassinated now this is very difficult uh, for me because we move now to November 22nd. Twelve noon, I was here in Chicago working on a counterfeit case, taking samples of and interviewing a person down on 30. 7th and Calumet, those from Chicago will know where I'm talking about. It's a small tavern down there where they were passing a lot of false checks and counterfeit money. I was interviewing the owner down there when I heard announced on a little small black and white television 
that the president had been shot. I was modified. I rushed back to the Secret Service agent and the secretary came to me crying. Secretary June Marie Topinas came to me crying, said she had gone into the office and told Mr. Martineau, who was special agent in charge, that the president had been shot and he looked at her coldly and said, so what else is new? And she was just shaking and sobbing. Now some strange things began to happen after the president was assassinated. As I said, we had an investigation here in Chicago where there was an Escher who several days before the president was assassinated told one of our informants, Escher was a member of the DRE, that was a, a Cuban organization that the president was about to be assassinated. Now, he was talking about the press assassinating the president and said that they had collected enough funds to assassinate the president, carry it out, and cover up the tracks of the assassin. Now, strange things happen after the president was assassinated. The reports concerning that investigation of Echevere and the whole DRE organization were pulled from the Secret Service files, redictated, sent to Washington, D.C., received in Washington, D.C. by Deputy Chief Paul J. Paterni by Special Courier. And those reports were locked away in a safe in the Chief of the United States Secret Service Office, I understand. And that happened in case that when the Warren Commission was in session, any reports that they wanted concerning the president's visits to Chicago and his security in Chicago and what happened in Chicago would have to come through the chief of the United States Secret Service who was James Rowley at the time. And it was Rowley who was in charge of the United States Secret Service at the time that the president was assassinated. It was James Rowley, the chief of the Secret Service, that was in charge of the Secret Service presidential detail when all the talk about not doing their job and not covering the president was prevalent among some of the agents. So when the Warren Commission was appointed by President Johnson, I knew that someone had to come forth. 
and let them know exactly what happened so far as the protection of the President Kennedy was concerned, that they agents were drinking, which I had complained about. They were womanizing, which I had complained about. And they had a con made a conscious statement that they would not protect the president. Now this is heavy on me because I have a pardon application pending at the time. At the time before President Obama. I have a pardon because of innocence application pending. And I know that I'm jeopardizing that pardon at the time because this will be the third time that I have put in for a pardon. I've been to the Supreme Court twice. When I went to Washington, D.C. in 1964, because I was very suspicious and I wanted to talk to the Warren Commission concerning the ineptness of the Secret Service. On May the 17th of 1964, I was attending the Secret Service School in Washington, D.C., and I made attempts to contact J. Lee Rankin, who was the uh, counsel for the Warren Commission. I even went so far as to go to the White House, use my pass along with another agent to go through the gate and go to the White House trying to find out how I could contact J. Lee Rankin. The reason I trusted him because he had office in Chicago. The next morning about noon I was attending the Secret Service School when Mr. Anderson who was the personnel director came to me and told me I was needed back in Chicago because they had discovered a counterfeiting plant in one of the white suburbs around Chicago. Two agents accompanied me back to Chicago one of them was one of the chief agents and I was met at the O'Hare airport by Dick Jordan and several other agents and driven to the courthouse at that time Edward B. Hanrahan was the United States Attorney now they had told me that I was being brought back because of a counterfeiting investigation in the suburbs of Chicago and yet they took me to the office of the United States Attorney they would not let me make one telephone call my wife didn't even know where I was she thought I was in Washington DC they would not let me eat they would not give me a drink of water and they held me until midnight 
and then told me that I was under arrest. I said, for what? They said, for trying to sell a file. Now, let me tell you about this file that they're talking about. All that this file was that they were accusing me of trying to sell in the first place was no more than a probationary report. Any attorney, any first-grade uh, first attorney would know that anyone has access once a case go to court under the rule of discovery to that report. And yet and still, a guy who I had arrested twice for counterfeiting United States currency, and he was going down for his third conviction, which would have carried a life sentence, he said that I tried to use him to go to another counterfeiter, Joseph Spagnoli, to ask Spagnoli for $50,000 to count, to make, to cut this short. When the case came to trial, a lot of strange things happened. Number one, I believed in the Constitution of the United States of America. I was taught that as long as I had been breathing on this earth by my mother and father. We believed in it. We believed in America. During the trial, the trial judge at the end of the first trial, the jury was deliberating. The judge called the jury out while they were deliberating and told the jury this. In my opinion, the defendant is guilty of counts one, two, and three in the indictment. Now, you can disagree with me. Now, go in and deliberate with the information that I just gave you. Wow. Wow. Now, that, that had never happened. But that jury did not find me guilty. I had a second trial. Now what happened on this was when the jury began to deliberate on a second trial, that's the reason I said if Edward Snowden comes back to the United States, he wouldn't have a chance to prove anything in a court of law. He better stay wherever he is. But the judge cleared the courtroom of everybody who were not government agents, this is during the jury's deliberation. He put me and my attorney, my brothers, my sisters, he cleared all of the spectators out and said he was closing down the court for the night and the jury was going to begin to deliberate the next morning at 9 o'clock. On my way home, that same day, August the 11th of 1964, at about 8.30 p.m., I was driving home on the Dan Ryan Expressway and heard the jury just reached a verdict, and they had sealed it, the verdict. Now, the judge had intentionally 
deprived me of my constitutional right to be present at my own trial at the time that I was found guilty. And here, 40-some years later, and after going to the Supreme Court twice, after applying for a pardon twice, after my family had gone through so much suffering, nothing has happened. And I'm very disappointed because next, this month, I'll be 82 years old. Two-thirds of my life has been dealing with this problem. I have not received any help from any Negro organization, African-American organization, black caucus, my congressman, my senator, even though they have been solicited to look into me. All I ask is that the FBI or some agency investigate and look into what happened to me in 1964. And that's not all. After I was convicted, they sent me on a circuitous route through Terre Haute Prison. I went from Terre Haute to Fort Leavenworth and to send an ex-agent to Fort Leavenworth Prison is like sending him to a death sentence. But nothing happened to me because I was on a venture. I was on a learning venture and I had found myself. I had found my true self for once in my life. I had found many answers that I had been seeking and I had learned how to anticipate and to think by the will of God. Amen. So now they sent me to this prison the medical center in Springfield, Missouri. This is a prison that has four institutions in one. There's a camp there and the piece of people that are the inmates that are assigned to the camp, they keep the place clean, they wash the dishes and they do different chores around, cut the grass. They have a terminal system there where since Springfield, Missouri is almost centrally located between east and west, is a terminal point between transferring inmates from the east coast to the west coast. Third, it's a hospital where they send people who need operations, who need uh, hospital care, suffer from diabetes and other such diseases. And the fourth place is the psychiatric part. And I knew that that's what they were going to try for me. And lo and behold, on July the 6th of 1967, while I was assigned to the camp under 9255 PC, 
they came to me two guards three o'clock in the morning handcuffed me and took me from the camp and placed me in the psychiatric ward where they forced me to take mind-altering drugs. They forced me to take them. Told me either I take them or they were going to shoot them in my butt. It's exactly what the guard told me. So I had to figure out a way in order to keep them from driving me insane. And whenever I ask them about why I was there, they said that I was making false accusations against the government and that when I got out of 2-1 East, which everybody calls the tomb, that I wouldn't even know my name. And I was very disappointed in my government for doing me like that. I had heard of other people who had suffered those types of of mistreatment but to put a man a married man with three children an ex-secret service agent state policeman who had been a mild citizen all his life to take the word of two convicts against a secret service agent and then try to destroy my mind that's what they did Mr. Bolden, I'm going to stop you right there if you don't mind. Uh, we're edging closer to the bottom of the hour break. What you're hearing is, who you're hearing is Abraham Bolden, a secret, first African-American Secret Service agent and the first two per, on the presidential protection detail for John F. Kennedy, alerted his uh, superiors to a plot to assassinate John F. Kennedy. You know, it almost brings, well, it does. It, 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 it's, I, I caught myself kind of tearing up when you were talking about how rough it was when you heard about the assassination and, and it, it, it's, it's incredible. It, I mean, it's heart wrenching. And because of your efforts to, uh, to, to expose not just the plot, but the, uh, the attitude, the, uh, what was happening with the Secret Service, um, you you were framed. I mean, I mean, the folks you can you can, and I, I would urge everyone to to purchase the Echo from Dealey Plaza to really get into his story. It's rich. It is um, well researched. I mean, it, it's 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 an incredible story. But see, here's the thing: we dig deeper. We go as far back as we can go. And as far back as we can to look as far ahead as possible. And that's exactly what we're doing right now. And I'd like to thank Bill McIntosh, Ocasa Media. That's Bill McIntosh, Ocasa Media, for setting up, assisting in setting up this interview, as well as John Robertson. Uh, this is absolutely incredible. And you know, folks, just think about today's environment. Think about what we're facing today. Think about what we faced in the last decade. You're, tra you're listening to, in my view, a true American hero, patriot, and someone with tenacity, with the assistance of God. Stay right where you're at. We're right back. 
listening to the Hagman and Hagman Report. Our guest, Mr. Abraham Bolden, Secret Service agent on the Presidential Protection Detail, JFK. That's right. I mean, living rich history. Now, although he has not told me to do this or asked me to do this or even mentioned this, this never was mentioned. I'm getting emails from all across the United States right now. Karen, thank you. Kathy, thank you. Richard, John, Robert, thank you all. Here's what we'd like to do. Everybody who's listening to this broadcast, how would you like to give Mr. Abraham Bolden a a birthday gift? His birthday is um, January 19th. Wouldn't it be great? Petition, send a letter, send, make a phone call, send a fax, email, make noise. Abraham Bolden deserves a presidential pardon. Okay? Uh, I don't know if we can have a grassroots campaign, but if anybody that's walking this earth that deserves a presidential pardon, it's this man for, um, really being framed, falsely imprisoned, denied his constitutional rights. And you heard what he said about, oh, throw you in the psychiatric ward, take mind-altering drugs, or we're going to shoot him in your butt. I mean, think about the implications. So we cannot remain silent. As Christians, folks, this is a call to action, in my view. Let's do whatever we can. Let's, uh, I mean, I don't care. Let's get, get somebody on the phone. Send emails, faxes, phone calls, uh, email, whatever. Ask for a pardon for Abraham Bolden. What a great birthday gift that would be, wouldn't it? Again, he did not ask me to do that. Hopefully that's okay with him. I didn't ask him, but I guess I can. Mr. Mr. Bolden, is that okay if we do that? Yes, that's okay. That's fine. Okay. And I want to thank all the listeners who, who sent in um, those emails saying, let's see if we can't get him uh, a presidential pardon. So you know what to do, folks. We're going we're gonna to galvanize our army right now, and uh, starting right now, get his name out there, get his name in front of your congressional representative, whoever you need to. call. I don't care. Get Obama out of bed. Do something, because this is wrong. Mr. Bolden, you went through hell in prison. I know you did. Your book, wow, and his book, The Echo from Dealey Plaza, it's a, it's a good read. It's informational and inspirational. Take us where you want to take us uh, with respect to uh, however you want to. We, we've got about 20 minutes or 25 minutes of this segment, and uh, that's it. So go take us wherever you want to take us, sir. Well, I would just like for everybody to know that... Uh Suffering is a great teacher. I did suffer. But you know the scripture says that in order to reach the highest height, you must reach the lowest depth. And when I began to meditate and look on it, look back on it, where when I went to Terry Hutt, I met John. I walked with a man named John. We became very good friends. At Springfield, I was walking around the yard and 
A young man named Elijah came to me and said, I've been expecting you. And he taught me quite a bit. And then I noticed things happening all around me that I was being protected. It was almost like angels were protecting me and my family. My wife was working here raising three children. And I was working in the penitentiary doing the best that I could, doing a lot of suffering. But it was for a teaching purpose. As the scripture said, I have chosen thee and refined thee, but not with silver. I have chosen thee out of the furnace of affliction. So when you look back on it, when you look back on it and, and discover it in all of the scriptures, if Moses were alive today, he would be an ex-convict. Elijah would be an ex-convict. Jesus himself would be an ex-convict. We're waiting for an ex-convict. These people never received a pardon. They never received a pardon, and they were satisfied with their life. See, I don't look at it as if they took my life, because this was my life. And as I said, suffering is a great teacher. It burns the world out of your soul. It purifies you. It turns that covered up mass of oil into pure gold. And that's what happened for me. And I have used that to write spiritual literature. It's on slideshare.com. I, I dedicated my time. I said that my prayers and my service and sacrifices, my life and my death, all for God. And he has no partners, and he looked after me. When I was down low, and they were forcing these drugs on me, and I prayed to God, and I saw the vision of God. On the morning that they were had me scheduled to go into a meeting, a psychiatric meeting, in order to declare me insane. This is what they were going to do for me. I was on the list in August of 1967 on the list to be declared insane on August 8th. The chief of the classification and parole who had told me to my face, his name was Julius Nichols, had told me to my face that when I came out of 2-1 East, I wouldn't even know my name. I would not be good to do anything for the rest of my life. That's what they had in store for me. But now on the very morning, the day before that I was to go before this committee, and this is a matter of record, 
that Julius Nichols, being the chief of the classification and parole, had to sign the documents in order to declare me insane. Let me tell you what God did to him. The night before I was supposed to go before this committee, Julius Nichols went on himself. He shot his wife in the leg. He ran down the street chasing his wife, shooting in the air. He shot up into one of the other guards' house, ran back home, went down in the basement of his $250,000 house, got an ironing cord, stood on an orange crate, tied a rope around one of the furnace pipes, and the other end around his neck and jumped off and committed suicide. And he was the only person who could sign the documents that would have made me insane the rest of my life. And that was God's work. He was telling me, look, Abe, I have sent you through this for something. I have been directing your life. And I'm directing it now. It is I who control everything. I am the master. If you look to me and be pure in heart and love, love thy neighbor as thyself, and put no man in front of me that I will protect you every time I fail low. I remember when they sent me to Maxwell Air Force Base in Montgomery, Alabama. I was a long way from home and really dejected. Didn't know what was going to happen to me. I was so far away from home that they were trying to separate me from my wife, but they couldn't do it. My wife being as diligent and love as she was and as spiritual as she was, she would work on the weekend all night and ride on the bus on Sunday, come to see me, come home on Sunday night and go back to work. That, that's what my wife Barbara did. Say a good wife is more precious than gold and I had gold. I had better than gold. Because God is better than gold. And while I was at Montgomery, Alabama, and I never will forget it, I just found the person who gave me so much strength and confidence. This person's name was Catherine A. Doctorman. I never will forget it. She doesn't realize the conversations that we had, how they uplifted me and kept me going and made me what I am today. She assisted me and helped me, did everything that she could do to help me. I just want everybody to know, don't fear anything, just place it in God's hand. And he'll work it out, but you got to work. You can't just sit back talking about, I got faith. Show me your works by your faith. And if you go, slideshare.com, 
and key in my name, Abraham Bolin, you will see what God has done for you, not just me, for you, because I set out as this youth to find out why, why, why the criminality, why the killing, why the murders, and I found that out, and I wrote on it from the voice of God. And the thing that's missing in this world is love, love, love. We gotta learn to love instead of hate. And then we're gonna be alright. God's gonna make it alright. Don't fear a man. He's gonna make it alright. Now I'd like to take a few questions if, if you have any. Yes, 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 uh, yes could we have any. We, we've got, uh, We've got more questions. We can keep you about a week, and we wouldn't get to all of the questions. Um, all right. Uh, first of all, I just want to say thank you so much for your uh, for your testimony. Uh, we're getting thank yous emails. Uh, I'm going to pass on those. Let me just open up a couple here. Okay. Um, in you, in your estimation, uh, Mr. Bolden, you've seen. You've seen the, the the best and the worst of humanity. You've seen uh, uh, you've lived through the, the the worst of the civil rights. Uh, how does how, how okay? How, how does what you experienced back in the 1960s compare to today? Are we going backwards? Are we at the same? Is it is it getting worse? Um, you, you know, what's the landscape today versus what you what you saw back then? I would, say I would say that they're about equal. They, 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 they're almost identical. They're almost identical, and, and that's purposeful. You know, President Kennedy himself, he warned us of the secret organizations and who were trying to take over the United States and take over the world. And he was, um, according to his speech, he told us to beware of even President Eisenhower said that to beware of these secret organizations that are trying to take over the world. Now Kennedy was assassinated for a global purpose. A global purpose. And uh to assassinate a president at broad daylight was ritualistic. At 12 noon has a lot of symbolic significance. The place where he was assassinated has significance. The number of shooters has significance. And in my estimation, there were four shooters. At least some of the Secret Service agents doing discussions after the assassination so that they thought that the president, uh, the headshot came from the front. And that's contrary to what the Warren Commission reported. There was so much covered up in the Kennedy assassination. The American people have been deprived of the truth. And when you deprive of people of the truth, that means that you have declared war on those people because you have filled their mind with other than God because God is truth and love 
Amen, sir. Um, another question. Uh, wow, so many here. Um, this goes back to your time in prison. Uh, writes uh, Joe R. Okay, from Oregon. Were you in? Uh, did you have occasion to serve time with, or otherwise meet with, a potential patsy by the name of Richard Case Nagel? I didn't meet Nagel, but when we were in two, when I was in two one East, I was told by a um, very reliable person that he also was in two one East, not too far from me. Now, two one East is a psychiatric ward. I I had heard that he was there. I never talked with him, but he was there at Springfield at the same time that I was. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. Next question here. Do you believe? Um, do you believe that there were deliberate stand down orders given on November twenty second, nineteen sixty three, that the Secret Service agents assigned to protect the president did carry out? This from Kerry from Wyoming. I believe that there was interference with the details so far as. Uh, kind of difficult for me to say but the agents were incapacitated from their usual habits of drinking womanizing men at agents and get in until about 4 o'clock in the morning the day that the president was assassinated which was habitual for those agents if that agent was involved and there is some indication that an agent may have been involved because of the change of identification that was processed within the Secret Service after the president was assassinated. You know, there was, uh, I believe it was a Deputy Sheriff Smith who ran up to Grassy Knoll, and he was confronted by um, a person who showed Secret Service identification. Now, to this very day, the Secret Service has denied it, but the Secret Service changed the identification. They took my identification, they, they took all of the agents' identification, we had to turn it in, the passbooks, and they changed the identification while the Warren Commission was seated. Now, I believe that they did this because some agent either was involved, lost his commission book, as it was called, or gave his commission book to someone, or the commission books were counterfeited. But there was a definite change in the identification on the commission books. We had to take new pictures. The wording on the commission book was changed, and yet the Secret Service are denying that even to the present day. But I think that it will come out uh, within the coming years. We need to get the files uh, of the Secret Service that are being held now by the archives. We need to get those files released, and then you're going to see a lot of things that uh, is going to surprise many people. Okay. Yeah, we only have we only have a few minutes left here, and and that that was the other question. What can the average person do 
uh, to advance, you know, to, to advance the truth or to get to the truth on this. And that's one of those things is to obviously petition to have the, uh, the secret files or whatever uh, exposed or brought to light. Um, okay. Uh, um, boy, again, so I'm just, we're just inundated with questions and yeah, that's a good thing. It's, uh, it's a bad thing for radio, but it's a good thing for, um, for the listeners out there. Many, many, many people, uh, uh, sir, want to just express their thanks and gratitude to you, uh, especially for your, your inspiration. Uh, with respect to your your spirituality, so thank you for that. Um, the J. Edgar Hoover. Okay, I'll take this question here, and I guess we're gonna probably have to kind of close this out. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI director at the time, uh, or uh, okay, along with Johnson, Lyndon Johnson. Did do you do you believe, sir, uh, Lyndon Johnson perhaps might have had a hand in the assassination and or J. Edgar Hoover? Now, let me be very specific that I have no solid evidence that either one of them were actively involved. But in my own opinion, I would think that they both knew that the assassination was coming. And I don't think that they conspired to do it, but I think they knew it was coming and did nothing to stop it and agreed with the effects of the assassination. That's what I think. Okay. You you wrote in your book, now this question is coming from me, you wrote in your book about a phone call to Chicago uh, coming from, uh, from a tipster named Lee, L-E-E. Obviously, that that brings forth uh, references perhaps to Lee Harvey Oswald. Yeah. Do you believe, uh, do you believe that? Happened, that ahead, happened in, in March of 1963. The president was coming to Chicago to give a speech at the uh, at the hotel, one of the hotels here, Blackstone Hotel, and the Secret Service received a call from the FBI who said that a person named Lee had called them and said that there would be an attempt on the president's life and the way that they were going to do it was from an overpass. Now what the Secret Service did was turn it over to Bob Linsky of the Chicago Police Department and had Bob Linsky, who was a lieutenant at that time, to station a policeman on every overpass leading from O'Hare Airport into the Blackstone Hotel. But then, because of the seriousness of the information that they had, they airlifted the president from the O'Hare Airport and landed at Meigs Field. That was a small airfield located near the lake in Chicago rather than risk its assassination coming down the expressway. The shots were supposed to emanate from the overpass. One of the overpasses around North Avenue on the expressway. Man, okay. 
Mr. Bolden, uh, we we are at the uh, really at the close of the program. This this has been a fascinating interview, a fascinating discussion to uh, to be talking with you and uh, someone who uh, President former President uh, John F. Kennedy had uh, described you as the Jackie Robinson of the Secret Service. Now, now people my age. They'll know what that means, and if you don't know what it means, it'd be a good history lesson to look it up. And you are indeed an important part of American history. And I just want to say thank you. Thank you for your service to this country. And on behalf of our listening audience, I want to apologize for what you've gone through. You know, it's just, it's, wow, it's just incredible. But as you mentioned, you know, God had your back. Wow. Mr. Bolden, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me, sir. Oh, it's it's been our honor. It's a, our privilege. And uh keep us posted if you we're going to we're going to do all, all we can to uh make enough noise maybe for a presidential pardon. Boy, wouldn't that be lovely for your for your birthday in uh yeah. Yes, it week. would. Now. Now, anyone who would like an autographed copy of the book can contact me at a.bolden at sbcglobal.net. We'll put that up on our website. Okay, and, good. And, and folks, you know, take advantage of that. Um, how gracious is that uh, for him to offer to personalize a book? Uh, uh, just, uh, again, through through the... through the uh, and, and, John, if you're listening to this, if you can put up... Uh, his email address, and uh, of course, uh, do they send money to you? Do, will you have an address where they can send send money to you? Or yeah, yes, that's book? right. Seventy six thirty two. Uh, so she has all that information. Okay, all right, fair enough. All right. As a Mr. matter of fact, it's on Facebook. Oh, okay. Oh, you're on Facebook. Wow, I can't even get back. I have a hard time with technology, and here you are, man burning it up on Facebook. We really appreciate it. Mr. Bolton, thank you so much for your gracious gift of time, and God bless you. And and uh, we'll be talking soon, I'm sure. Same to you. Thank you very much. All right. Right. Folks, that was uh, Abraham Bolton. My goodness. If you're not informed, more informed now than before the beginning of the program, and more inspired, I don't know. I don't know. But what a what a tremendous man and think about that face to face with John F. Kennedy in, a, in the most unlikely meeting basement restroom and here comes President Kennedy and shakes his hand and the rest as they say is history you know God does put people in places where he wants them to be doesn't he It's proof. This is proof. I, I truly believe that. And what an incredible man. And, and if you read his story, you know he was imprisoned on false charges because he was trying to expose what the Secret Service, what was going on with the Secret Service and the plots against the President of the United States. And I don't care what you think of the President. I don't care if you hate Obama, if you like Obama, hate Trump, like Trump. I don't care. It's the office. No one, no one 
is the right to take a life of the President of the United States. Now, if, if this didn't move you, wow, what an incredible man. What an incredible story. And see, as I said, we dig deeper, don't we? We, And the, the further back you look, we go as far back as we can to look as far ahead as possible. And that's what tonight was about. The book. The Echo from Dealey Plaza. The author, Abraham Bolden. A big thank you to Bill McIntosh of Ocaso Media. Till tomorrow. Good night and God bless. 